Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Carl Polin, who's the Chief Investment Officer for the Arizona State Retirement System, a $40 billion state pension fund. Carl's been on staff with ASRS now since 2010 and was on its board for 13 years prior to joining the staff. As our podcast has been traveling around the real estate universe, I have thought that it was important to get the perspective of the capital that is investing into the real estate business. Carl provides a hugely important perspective as we think about different aspects of the environment in which the real estate business operates, especially capital. For without capital, the real estate business, famously capital-intensive, ceases to exist. Carl did not start his career in pension land or in real estate. He started as a studio musician. So we will hear his story and the transition from base Nashville session man, ultimately to CFO of several real estate companies in Arizona, and then on to the capstone of his career as the chief investment officer for a $40 billion pension fund. Thanks and enjoy the show. So, Carl Pollan, welcome and thanks for being a guest on Leading Voices in Real Estate. We have a lot to talk about today, and I want to get right into it. In the Leading Voices series, I'm interviewing leaders from throughout the real estate world to gain a wide perspective on the business. And Carl, in many ways, you're a voice of the pension fund investing world for our podcast. But at the same time, and I think we're going to get into this, you're a fairly atypical, non-traditional investor Last comment, this is a series about leaders in our industry and how they got there. So we'll be talking both about you and your career journey as much as we'll be talking about the place of real estate in the institutional investment portfolio. So welcome to Leading Voices. Thank you. And maybe the place to start, just kind of quick overview so people understand what we're chatting about today is do give the headline on ASRS and your activities in real estate. And then we're going to come back to that for most of the conversation. Sure. ASRS is um, a reasonably large-scale real estate investor. We currently have about 10% of our fund assets or $4 billion invested in real estate. It's been a successful area for us, We've and, and we're planning to increase that in, our, in the next update of our strategic asset allocation. So we're, you know, based on the numbers you cited, probably on the high end, of U.S. pension funds in terms of our exposure to real estate, but not on the high end of exposure to real estate in terms of global markets. For example, the Canadian pension plans, you know, typically have more like 20% of the assets in real estate, and that's kind of the range we're headed towards. We started investing in real estate in the mid-2000s, so we've been at it for a little over 10 years, and and then when I came on board, uh, we changed the structure of the program to be a more direct investor by investing through separate accounts with real estate operators. And since implementing that program, we've invested $3 billion in these separate accounts, and we've earned um, a 15% IRR, which makes the real estate our highest performing asset class, and uh, we've out performed the Odyssey Indice benchmark by nearly 5% a year. Wow. And you never know, though, sometimes outperforming means when there's a turn that you've taken a risk in the opposite direction. So that could be a dangerous place to be as well. <laughs> well, it, it it can be, but I think our risk is um, well managed and, and we've taken the risks we wanted to take and we've been rewarded for those uh, for those risks. Sounds good. 
So most of our conversation is going to be about what you do there, but we also want to talk about you and your career and how you got to the place that you got to. So let's start talking about Carl and, and your pathway. Um, you grew up in the Midwest, and I think the first part of your career was in the music industry. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's you know probably a little unusual for somebody who does what I do for a living right now. But I did start out playing music. I started playing like anybody else. I started playing as a kid. I first... I think the first time I got paid to play music, I was 14 years old uh, and and simply got the bug. I, I loved playing music. It became my life. It was um, not my sole focus, but it certainly was a very intense focus for uh, throughout my teenage years and into my early um, early 20s and ended up moving down to Nashville to try to make a living playing music. I think I was 19 going on 20 when I went down to Nashville and, you know, ended up playing, ended up playing in the the studios with, uh, you know, this would be if you were a country music fan in the 1970s, it's likely you would have heard me play. Wow. And um, just one side story for me, my first check uh, was also for music. I played in my rock and roll band at my great-grandmother's old age home, and I did get a check for $10. And the the best part— I think that was about what I made. (laughs) The best part was watching the old people turn down their hearing aids when we played in the Gata DeVita really bad. Anyhow, so um, you're 19 and you're a bass player, right? That's right. I was a bass player. And studio musician in that great place. And were there any recordings that we might know about or just want to hear about just as touch points for uh, for popular culture here on the podcast? Well, probably the album that I played on that did the best was a Charlie Daniels Band album, the Million Miles Reflection album. That's actually the album that had the song The Devil Went Down to Georgia, but I didn't play on that song. I played on three other songs whose names I would not be able to recall oh, it's, okay. Uh, but it's okay and, and you also played on johnny cash records i did i played uh i think uh, i played on three different johnny cash records this was in the 1970s uh johnny cash if you're a johnny cash fan you know that his he had an early period of brilliance with the Sun Sessions and a late period of genius with the Rubin Records and then a long middle middle stretch of, you know, commercial yes. effort. And I was sort of part of that. But I did play at the Columbia Studios with with Johnny Cash and uh when you know, when you're a studio musician, it's you know, the Commercial music is recorded in layers, and usually the artist does not attend the sessions. You you have different groups that show up at different times, and but one time Johnny Cash actually came to one of the sessions. So mm-hmm. one of the highlights of my life is I actually met and chatted with with Johnny Cash. He it was uh, he was an incredibly gracious guy, and you know I think I was you know, probably 20, 20 years old. And he approached me and just started chatting with me. And the whole, you know, I think he literally said, you know, just thanked me and said, thank you for taking time to come play on my record and then complimented how I was playing and all this kind of stuff. And we ended up chatting for, um, you know, a whole break about, 
you know, musician stuff. What, you know, what do you like? What kind of strings do you like to use on your guitar? And, you know, the, you know, just, just stuff that uh, musicians talk to each other about. It was, you know, just an incredible uh, experience and something, frankly, as a 20 year old that I didn't appreciate. It took, it took decades of uh, perspective for me to understand that that was a pretty cool thing. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting, because if you played on a bunch of his stuff and then had that one experience meeting him face-to-face, it, that's a disconnect in my mind of how people work together. So it's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> it is indeed. It's Yeah, that's the... Uh, playing music commercially probably is different from what people would, would guess it's like. And and any... I know we're, we're going to move pretty quickly into kind of going in for an MBA and just changing your life. But anything from that experience that you bring to your work today? Probably the thing that, you know, is that I'd compare to my work today is just the the discipline of it. You know, people may uh, think about playing music, just the, you know, the fun part and the performing but music is really hard work and anybody who gets any good at playing music has put a lot of hours in and so when i was learning how to play music i really did practice four and five hours a day and and that type of discipline and focused effort is you know really critical to any career but certainly in investing you know it's a boundless topic there's there's no beginning and end to what you need to know and what's worth knowing and so the ability to be completely focused on something you know is in you know incredibly valuable to you know think through problems come up with new ideas and you know deal with the world as it evolves absolutely true so Tell us how you moved from a music career to deciding to study for an MBA and then beginning a career in real estate, I guess. <laughs> well, it was just simply economics. I, you know, as, as thrilling as, you know, as playing music was, it was, and, and I probably played on, you know, 30 or 40 records over the couple of years that I tried to make a living doing that, but I wasn't anywhere near making enough money to, to really make a living. And so I ended up taking side jobs out of music. And and at a certain point, I, um, you know, once I got married and had a kid, I just needed a steadier paycheck. So it isn't any more complicated than that. And so I ended up, uh, I first, uh, you know, worked in accounting and then ended up getting my my MBA at Vanderbilt, which then which then led to the career in real estate. Mm-hmm. Got it. So you graduate Vanderbilt. Maybe what brings you from the South to Arizona and what brings you into real estate and walk us through kind of quickly what, what you did in the industry? Well, after when I, you know, as I was finishing up at Vanderbilt, I, you know, went through a recruitment process and ended up signing on with a startup firm in real estate in the Southeast. At the time, you know, coming from my background, I just didn't feel I'd fit in a corporate type environment with a lot of rules and and dress codes and stuff like that. And so I wanted to work for a small entrepreneurial firm and uh, ended up and ended up picking that opportunity. The, frankly, the fact that it was real estate probably was, you know, that was secondary to, um, 
to the decision I was making at the time. And so I was working in real estate in the Southeast for a number of years. And then uh, we had a, we had a number of projects in Phoenix and I was traveling back and forth in Phoenix. This was in the mid 1980s. And one thing led to another and ended up finding a job working for Ed Robeson in the retirement housing business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and where, where are we in the time period then? What is this, the 80s, 70s? Uh, that, would be the, that, that would be the middle 1980s. Okay. It was, you know, it was an interesting time because we had, you know, we were developing industrial real estate. And as you may recall, in 1986, with the passage of the Tax Act back then, there was a big impact on uh, on real estate because they took away a lot of the tax benefits, and that put you know put stress on things. And so, my job at the time was you know was was working out projects that had what turned out to be too much debt and looking for tenants. You know, it was it was a super uh, super experience. And, but then, you know, so I was working on various projects in the Southeast and then rotated over to, to Phoenix and, and, uh, ended up finding the job out here. Mm-hmm. And in Phoenix, it, you had been doing industrial in the Southeast, you come to Phoenix and then the job was immediately that Mr. Robeson was developing retirement communities Were these, uh, yeah, that's right. land, land plays or was it more congregate care? What end of the retirement housing spectrum were you involved with? I was the active adult end. It was these were age restricted resort communities for the main real estate was single family uh, single family housing. Mm-hmm. Right, sunbird kind of stuff. Right, is that or snowbird sunbird? What's the right word for that? <laughs> snowbird kind of stuff. Exactly right. Yeah, huge in 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 Arizona. Yeah, it was a fairly big business out here in Arizona. Maybe you know several thousand houses a year were sold in the active adult sector. Robeson, you know, was an interesting story in and of itself. He started out with Dell Webb with the Sun City, and then he broke off and started his own company in in the mid nineteen seventies. And he was at that time and for decades was the you know, the principal competitor to Dell Webb in the active adult community business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what did you do for him? What was your role? I became chief financial officer, but I did kind of everything. The primary role that I ended up playing was, you know, working on the deal side, on negotiating new transactions, um, working on entitlements, lining up new financing, and so forth. But then later on, took on a bunch of other roles. I, you know, he had a commercial real estate business. I ran the commercial real estate business. One of the strategic contingencies in big land development is environmental water and environmental compliance. And so I ended up managing those segments of the business and we owned a half a dozen water and sewer companies and and then had to obtain all the environmental and water permits to be allowed to develop the communities in the first place and then broadly in uh, in operations mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one of the things you told me when we spoke a couple of weeks ago is that you're the quintessential number 2 is is that kind of the role that you played there 
Well, it, it, yeah, I guess so. Because, you know, as I mentioned, I always wanted to work for entrepreneurs, even though I never had, you know, the, the courage, I suppose, to, to become one. And it's worked out well for me. I think that the role, if, you, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, they have to, you know, you have to have a vision in mind and pursue it in a very single, in a very single-minded way. And the role then becomes, you know, to take charge of the detail because there's the, you know, the implementation of these eyes involve, uh, ideas involve, you know, thousands of details. And so I became the person who was in complete command of the details. You know, every every real estate transaction has paperwork, thousands of pages of paperwork. And so my job became, you know, to be the person who knows the most about what's on every one of those pages and then to keep track of everything about how we're uh, going forward with, with implementation and all the, like I said, like all the permitting and things like that. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a pretty, you know, I found it to be a very satisfying and fascinating role and, and one that was very valuable to them that freed them to pursue uh, the, and the biggest picture. We'll, t we'll take a sideline for a minute because I'm just curious on the question um, on how you look at partners today and when you evaluate whether to make an investment with a company over the long term, are you seeking both the – are you looking at the skill set of the team to make sure it has both the entrepreneurial side as well as the guy who does all those things you just described? Yes, for sure, because you, you – you you can't be a success unless you're successful on both of those dimensions because every every successful business you know has a vision person that is single minded about pursuing that vision but you have to turn that into execution and to turn it into execution requires a team and organization and so you and, and a lot of times you know the people who are the vision people aren't necessarily it isn't necessarily their strength to be the detail person and even even if it is their strength it may not be uh, what they want to focus on and so you know we absolutely when we're doing our investments we dig deep in understanding the organization and and how they're in charge of details and how how they deliver on execution. On a real estate deal, it isn't enough to just buy it right. Execution is where the value is added and and, and how it's created. Uh, well, I totally agree. It's interesting. We're often blinded by the leading name at the top of a company, and we think, okay, they're great investors. But if you're going to be long-term, I would keep wanting to say in bed, but if you're going to be long-term in bed with another with a company doing multiple transactions, then it's the execution skill that matters equally to the that that leading investor brilliance. Uh, that's absolutely right. Oh well, okay. Let's keep talking. Let's go back to your career because we'll we'll come in a, in a few minutes back to what you're doing at a ASRS. So then you're Robeson, and then you went on to Pivotal, maybe, and talk about that and. Then we'll get to your career. In working in real estate in you know in Phoenix in the last thirty years, I've had 
the good fortune to work for two of the best entrepreneurs that have ever been, you know, in this market, Ed Robeson, you know, a major brand in retirement housing. After working for Ed for over 15 years, I be I became interested in real estate in a in a in a broader sense. And Francis Najafi had founded Pivotal Group, you know, sometime in the 1990s or so. And Francis had, you know, we had become acquainted in real estate circles. And over time, we just had had more and more conversations about real estate. It was clear to me that we were, you know, simpatico on how we thought about real estate. And Francis gave me an opportunity to join him as a partner in his business. And so I did that. Mm-hmm. And, and what did that company do? Multidisciplinary real estate. We had real estate in every category across Western and Southwestern markets, mostly transactional oriented and capital markets oriented, more so than the operations orientation of, say, the Robeson team. So we were buying offices, hotels, um, and other other types of property to either develop them or reposition them, and then and then take them to the market for sale. Mm-hmm. And if you describe the yin of your yang from Ed with yet Ed, what was that with Francis? You know, Francis and I saw the world a very similar way. Francis was a very very driven entrepreneur and. I helped him with detail and execution. In Francis's case, Francis was incredibly detailed and incredibly hardworking, but you simply can't do everything. And so I worked side by side with him on transactions and um, and the operations and um, repositioning of these of these assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Sometimes it's a uh, vision person and someone who gets it all done, and sometimes it's side by side. So your choice of words is, is it's really interesting. Uh, so along the way, you got on to the board as a trustee of ASRS. So talk about how that happened, when that happened, and why you chose that as your outside activity. You know, when I first started working in real estate in Phoenix for Ad in the 1980s, you know, I became active in the community. I needed to be active in the community, in a you know, in addition to wanting to be, but was involved in, uh, you know, needed to be involved with government as a result of all the, you know, activities with uh, large-scale land development and got to you know, got to know a bunch of people at different agencies in government, and actually the. The biggest, where it really started, believe it or not, was I did a ton of work in water and environmental stuff. And through that, got to know people both at the legislature and in the governor's office. And and what happened is actually somebody in the governor's office approached me and basically asked me to take on this role to become a trustee for the ASRS. And, um, and, and I agreed to do it. It was, uh, you know, it was an interesting time because 1994 was a very difficult time in the markets. And there were, you know, there were some concerns about the investment performance and we were, and the agency was going through some change and they were looking for some, you know, new ideas in the leadership. And, you know, that was the environment when I joined the board. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 94 was as we're coming out of the SNL crisis, I think. That's correct. Maybe Arizona was slower to come out. 
94 was a tough environment in the stock market actually there was uh there was a there was a difficult stretch in the stock market around then <laughs> so so talk about your time on the board and then what brought you in on staff but and and maybe these are evolutionary comments about the pension fund and its activities in real estate so think of it from each of those perspectives and then what what brought you on board the mid 90s you know was a turning point for the Arizona state retirement system because at prior to then it had been managed in a very, very traditional and conservative way with primarily a U.S.-based stock and bond portfolio. And so at the, at the time, uh, at around the same time uh, as I went on the board, we brought in a new CIO, a fellow named Paul Matson, who came down from Canada to work for the ASRS. And we started a program which continues to evolve today to increase the diversification of our investments. So our first move in diversifying our investments was to expand into expand our investment program into international stocks. And then it went from there. Along the way, we implemented programs to manage assets in, with, with internal staff and, and so forth. You know, the late 90s, you know, was a wonderful time to be investing in real estate because of the SNL L crisis. Um, uh, ASRS was not involved in in real estate at that point, and one of my roles on the board was to encourage the increased diversification of the investment program, which eventually led to implementing a uh, a real estate program. But that wasn't until uh, into the two thousands that we began investing in real estate. When did you? move on staff and why end your career in the private sector of real estate. So just talk about that leap across, is an easy leap, you already work there, but why? What was, the, what, what was the motivation or timing? I had long intended, um, you know, having served on the board of ASRS and, and several other public boards over the years, I developed, you know, a positive view of people that participated in public service and then formulated my own plan that I wanted my to end my career with a period of, of public service. So 2010 just became a good time to do that. Obviously, we were in the midst of a global financial crisis, and the and and leading into that, when I was working with Pivotal, we were winding down projects and generally shrinking our company in response to what was going on with the market. And so, it simply became a good time to make a change. And I was involved with the campaign with for uh, a fellow who was trying to be become governor in the 2010 election, uh, hoping to become part of his administration in a cabinet role or, or something like that. And in the midst of that, I, I called Paul, and because even though I'd been off the board for a couple of years, we'd maintained a, a friendship. So I called Paul and asked him, you know, how this works and, you know, how to position yourself to get a key position and all this kind of stuff. And we, we chatted about this. And then a couple of weeks later, he called me up. And he said two things. Number one, your guy is going to lose. He isn't going to be governor. And number two, if you're serious about making no money and, and working and trying to do good for the world, why don't you just come to work for me down at ASRS? And he was 
right on the politics, and that's what I ended up doing. Okay, good. And hopefully he was wrong about making no money. Everything's relative. <laughs> well, <laughs> no money's an exaggeration. I'm actually reasonably well well paid, even though it's modest by uh, private sector standards. <laughs> okay, good. So, so then, so you joined, and and by the time you had joined, and and real estate was has never been the focus of your job there, and that's going to be the focus of our conversation. But um, the the fund had become involved with real estate, so maybe talk first about the evolution of the fund's involvement with real estate, what it looked like at first, and then how that has changed, and. And we'll come back to your role and all that, but pretend it's all one and the same. When ASR started investing in real estate, it invested as most U.S. pension funds do, which is is that it went there. There is a market of real estate investment product providers through partnerships of investment funds, and ASRS was a fund investor and in commingled funds of various of various sorts. But they were all minority interest investment, passive investments in uh, in real estate funds. Mm-hmm. And and that the passive minority interest investment in commingled funds that's kind of the typical game, right? That is the game for I would say most pension fund uh, investors. Yes, it is. It is okay. So that's where they you started, and I'll talk about the evolution. When I joined, I after studying that program, I concluded it would be in our interest to change how we approached real estate to invest direct more directly in the real estate through partnerships in separate accounts, direct with real estate operators. There's any number of reasons why we wanted to do that, but they, including we eliminated a, a middleman. We were able to have more control over our destiny in terms of selecting the types of deals we wanted to do, and then also have more control to be able to exit an investment or increase an investment, You know, depending on on how things were going. I mean, you just simply have a different relationship with a partner when, you know, when you are in a control in a control position where you're the sole investor in the fund and you, you then are a true partner and you can engage in a dialogue with your partner about about strategy going forward. It's worked it's worked really well and we've developed great relationships with our partners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and having that Desiring that kind of control suggests that you have a thesis and an idea and a direction and knowledge to to be directing them towards. <laughs> it does indeed, and yes, uh, and I think I think we do, and I think we've we've implemented that through a partnership we've created with our real estate consultant. RCLCO. We wouldn't be able to do this without them because we don't have a we don't have a big team to be able to cover all the markets. But what we did in order to be effective in our relationship with our partners is we brought RCLCO on board, and they, of course, are their firm background is in you know a deep understanding of markets and so with that understanding we then formulated a plan that sometimes i've called it demand driven investing 
the where we're focused on not so much capital markets, although we do focus on capital markets, but we focus first on what are the fundamental drivers of demand for real estate? What's going on with demographics? What's going on with migration patterns? What's happening in the world of work? And what are all the implications for demand for real estate? And then we formulated a plan for what types of real estate we wanted to own, what types of buildings, what markets. And then after that, we searched for partners to implement the strategies that we selected based on based on that analysis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So first of all, talk about it, it maybe, and, and Gotti Kaufman from RCLCO was a guest on the podcast a couple of months ago, so we we had some of this conversation, and I know his and their firm's wisdom, that's a very different approach, I think, from the traditional uh, pension fund advisor f- firms like Townsend and, Ka- and Callan, I think, which are more... Maybe contrast those two approaches because that's your first your first bet is to be thoughtful in a different way. Yeah, it is a really different approach. I think that um, real estate became accepted as an institutional asset class probably starting in the 80s and 90s with firms like AEW. And in order to make real estate attractive to institutional investors, they tried to get it to fit into the lingo of institutional investors. And and by doing that, they focused on the financial characteristics of real estate, and then they tried to fit it into a framework that institutional investors were familiar with in terms of diversification and efficient frontiers and 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 these types of ways of of thinking about an asset class. The problem with that was is that they lost track of the real estate itself and So one of the things that was most striking when I started working in at the pension fund and we were talking to real estate folks is they wanted to talk about real estate in terms of what I thought were very artificial risk categories and, you know, concepts of portfolio optimization and so forth. And then when I, you know, when I started asking them about, you know, the operational characteristics of the real estate to try to, you know, to try to get a sense of, well, is the real estate any good? You know, why, why, what's up with how it's performing and understand the performance from that perspective. And frankly, I just kind of got kind of blank stares because when I was in the private sector, we spent more time than anything else trying to build a better mousetrap. We were focused on what market were we addressing? What did the consumers want? You know, would if we, you know, when I was in the housing business, we literally would spend time start talking about, well, like, you know, if I put a Baldwin doorknob on the front door, does that speak quality? You know, does that, does it, will somebody pay extra with that, you know, because they have a sense of, I'm not making this up. It's funny. It's true that it's funny, but it's true. Oh, it's true. <laughs> it, the, Another, I keep I keep quoting our podcast, but Gerald Hines I think sold his first big office building by showing them a lock set, and he just brought the most expensive lock set to the meeting he could bring and said, "Okay, this is what I'm going to build you." <laughs> and so, and and so I came from that culture 
that of of understanding real estate from a consumer perspective and and then trying to build a brand around notions of quality in terms of how you delivered a physical product, how you supported it uh, from a customer service experience and what what type of a lifestyle you were delivering with with the product. And institutional real estate people just didn't get that. And so I thought there was a big opening to rethink completely how we were approaching real estate from an investment perspective by orienting it to understanding demand. One of the things I like to say is, you know, the risk of real estate is not having tenants. That's really what it boils down to, you know, because everything else that you think of as financial risk, well, you only have financial risk if you don't have tenants. (laughs) It, It isn't any more complicated than that. And if your building is leased at whatever the market can produce, then whatever your financials issues are, you're going to be well positioned to work through them. And if the building is performing well, even if you have an issue to contend with with a lender, the lender is going to work with you and you're going to get through to the other side. So that was, you know, that was the idea that I decided to pursue, but then I needed a different consultant to help me implement it. And what Arcielco brought to the table was both depth of, uh, knowledge of the markets, and then deep relationships across the industry that once we identified the strategy, they were also well-positioned to help us identify the partners. Right. It's interesting because it sounds like, you know, culture shock coming in and really thinking about it and saying, God, I'd never think about this as a developer or an individual investor. And maybe also the other model maybe going towards the median or the mean, and here you're trying to go after what makes the most sense bottoms up. It's a totally different approach. I think that's right. And it was culture shock. I mean, it was having worked in, you know, very driven entrepreneurial cultures uh, for many years, you know, going to work for the government was uh, was culture shock to say the least. This is just one dimension of it, but this is the, you know, this was an area where we were able to work and we accomplished change, you know, pretty pretty readily and and achieved a good result. You know, one of the reasons I went to work for ASRS is because, you know, having worked with Paul Matz, and he was the chief investment officer, you know, when I first went on the board at ASRS, and then I was on the search committee and you know, when we promoted him to be the um, executive director of the ASRS. So I knew him extremely well. And I knew, you know, he would be open to uh, a creative approach. I wouldn't have taken this if I if I thought I was just going to be, you know, stuck in a box and, you know, uh, required to approach things, you know, the same way you know, that they've always been done. So I knew I'd be able to, you know, work with Paul to implement new ideas. And so it's kind of unusual, but, you know, for 15 years or so, I was his boss. And now we've, now we've changed, changed roles, but over the, you know, I guess now nearly 26 years I've known him or something or other, you know, we've had a, you know, a tremendously productive and mutual respectful relationship where we've, you know, he's, you know, I I couldn't implement the stuff we're implementing without, you know, without his support. Absolutely. You're talking about this as it's different from others, although I think there's other pension funds and, you know, Yale's written about the most, but I think state of Washington has similar approaches to investing in companies and businesses and strategies versus 
more passively investing in funds. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is not, this is an approach that is well established in other other types of institutional investors i would say this would be that we're we're moving more in the direction of what you might call the canadian plan the canadian pension plans are much more likely to invest directly or invest with operators and things like that the um so this isn't a a pioneering type approach. It's I, I, I'd like to think it's creative and and well done, but we didn't invent the idea of of investing directly with an operator. This is an approach that's been used many times before with other you know by other types of investors. It's just not typical of a U.S. pension plan. Absolutely true. It is, and I think also of you coming to this after a successful career in real estate versus mid-career trying to make your name, here you can take a different risk profile because the low-risk profile is to do what everyone else is doing and go for the median versus taking a stance, which is what it sounds like your kind of investment investing does. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it would be harder for somebody. I mean, if you were you know, in your 30s or 40s and you were, and you wanted to make a career as a, as a pension fund manager, maybe it'd be harder to make some of the decisions I've made because you'd be fearful of being different from, from other people. But that's not the situation I was in. Right. And I, I use the word, I guess, positions. It's funny, everyone in real estate, so many people use the word bets. We made a bet on this or a bet on that. And Every time I have like a visceral response to that word is particularly what we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars or more. But maybe talk about some of the stances, bets, positions you've taken since coming over and what, what they mean and what, how you see that. Uh, sure. Well, bet is a perfectly good word, but it's but it carries with it a connotation that is uh, implies carelessness, and so we don't tend to use it in our public in our public materials. But we do take positions, and recently, uh, one of our bigger investments is is we bought a fifty percent interest in um, uh, in an apartment. Uh, operator and developer called Mill Creek Residential Trust. That was a $550 million investment facilitated, you know, by our relationship with RCLCO, which they, they provided the introductions. But Mill Creek had been in a partnership with the state of North Carolina, and the state of North Carolina was undergoing some changes and wanted to exit that relationship. So we were able to step in and buy the interests of the state of North Carolina and become a new partner for Mill Creek. It is a strategic move for ASRS. They are, you know, the apartment sector is an important area for us. In our real estate strategy, we think about real estate in its, you know, functional sense of, uh, and we describe it as uh, the function of real estate is where people live, where people work, and where people shop. And the residential component, where people live, we're targeting 50% of our portfolio in the residential sector. That's significantly higher than the typical institutional allocation to residential. And and so we're planning to have, as we move our portfolio to 20% of total fund, we're planning to own 
what will boil down to approximately $4 billion uh, in equity interests in apartments. So given that magnitude, it was logical for us to create a strategic relationship with a firm that had deep expertise in apartments and was engaged there. They have offices in 14 markets across all the growth sectors in the United States. And they have the type of expertise we need to execute our apartment program going forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I know I know the company well, and of course their uh, their DNA comes from Tramble Crow Residential, the grandfather or grandmother of the apartment industry. Yeah, they are. They the this is a this is an experienced group of folks. Their uh, their investment team collectively has hundreds of years of experience in in developing and and managing apartments. Uh, and at five hundred million dollars, that's an eighth of your current balance sheet in real estate. Is that maybe about right? Just thinking about it, we've got about four billion dollars in real estate. So yeah, that's about an eighth of our balance sheet in real estate right now. Uh-huh. And and last point on this one, I'm just curious. So if you think about an investment like that, as compared to a more generalist investment in multifamily, does your ownership of them beef up your returns one, two, three percent, half a percent? How how does that by owning them? What does that enable you to do? It gives us benefits in on multiple dimensions. First, as you already mentioned, from a return perspective, by investing in the operator, effectively we're getting a discount on fees uh, that we would be paying um, if we hired somebody uh, non-affiliated to um, to do this work. And that is a reason uh, that is a reason to do it, which is to uh, reduce costs through you know, in a private contest, what you'd call vertical integration. So we have synergy benefits in in that regard. But that alone isn't the reason to do it. It's really about the expertise in the market access. I think they have, the day we bought them, they, they were active in 71 projects and then had a pipeline of another 20 or 30 others. So given that you know the depth that they're engaged in the in the markets. They're seeing they're seeing really all the deals. They're manufacturing a lot of the deals uh, by knowing the market and and knowing what sites would be best for potential uh, apartment development. And so they're generating their own deal flow. They're seeing all the deals from brokers, and then the expertise to know the difference, to know what's worth pursuing, to be disciplined about making sure you have a correct entry point and to be disciplined about timing when to pursue particular opportunities. So it's uh, it benefits on every dim- every dimension that matters for us to succeed in the in, uh, succeed in the investment. It's a new investment, so we can't you know, we don't have any results to report on it, but we have we obviously approached it with high confidence that it would be accretive to our portfolio um, and transformational simply to how we think about real estate. Yeah. And last question, and we'll move on to a couple of other things before we wrap up. But it's somewhat late in the cycle and maybe particularly for the apartment industry, which was one of the first to recover in the cycle. It's way late in the cycle, but maybe... This is a long-term play, not a cycle play. Any comments on that? 
That's right. It's a strategic. It's 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 about the strategic relationship as much as it is the transaction. I think that it is late in the cycle, but in order for us to take advantage of whenever the next cycle is, is we have to have a relationship with an operator uh, who can then jump on those opportunities, and 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 so you have to put that in place before the cycle happens. So so that's what we're doing. As far as the transactional aspect, we engaged in deep diligence on on the assets with multiple consultants, including, of course, R.C. Elko, who helped us understand the markets. And, you know, we, be, we believe we paid a, a good price for the assets and will, you know, re, will achieve good returns on the assets that um, that we've that we've purchased. So, you know, we've tried to do the best we can on on um, on all those dimensions and are, are optimistic it'll work out well. And it fits, again, your strategy of in different sectors of the business and in different allocations, you're more of a direct player than you are a passive fund investor, which is where we started the conversation. That is correct. We are we are a direct investor, and we are not a passive fund investor. We are, you know, the circumstances where we'd invest in a fund are at this point rare. And help this help me think. So I'm a layperson, way from the outside. Help me think about who's behind the curtain, and who's behind the curtain at ASRS, or is it at RCLCO? And then with the folks behind your side of the curtain. What's it like to work in a state pension fund? And you opened the conversation also with you were working for no money, and then we laughed because it wasn't really no money, but that's your team. So how do you, <laughs> how do you motivate? How do you have esprit de corps? How does that work inside the beast? We're fortunate to have a really solid investment team at, at ASRS. It's a very small team. There's just nine of us managing $40 billion. So so our efforts at, at managing are largely about orchestrating the efforts of people outside the organization. Um, we have... Um, you know, within our within our group, we have a public equities group. Um, their job primarily is to internally manage our our stock portfolio, which is a very operational exercise because they're trading um, they're trading to published indices. Um, extremely successful effort. We've we've saved. Um, tens, you know, tens of millions of dollars, probably approaching a hundred million dollars in fees over the years by doing this, and have added value by directly investing in stocks. So the idea of wanting to be a direct investor has been part of the culture of ASRS, you know, for a long time. And we had so we start that was really the first area where we started direct investing, where we're we're controlling our own work. We do the same thing. In fixed income, on the private market side, um, you know, we really just have one one person each, you know, for private equity and um, and real estate. So when I became CIO, um, you know, we we moved somebody into the real estate role who is learning the sector and you know has been you know really come a long way in working side by side with RC Elko in in developing the program. At this point I spend I you know, I drift in and out of what I'm focused on, but I spend 
you know, probably less than 10% of my time specifically on, uh, on the real estate program at this point, because we're very thinly staffed, the, we do rely a great deal on, you know, consultants for the uh, consultants and other outsiders for the, for the execution of our program, particularly in, um, particularly in private markets, and that's where the relationship with our Co comes into play, and they've been, uh, we wouldn't be able to implement the real estate program without the role they play. With what you just described of you as less than 10% and one person who's learning this business, I, I should hope so. That's a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole lot of leverage, both to RCLCO, but then also to your managers, because there's, how many different managers do you have under RCLCO that you get to work with? I think about uh, it's between ten and fifteen, and so we have a we have a comprehensive program. The the we've set up an asset management system that I think is among the best, if not the best, where we visit every asset before we buy it. We visit every asset once a year while we own it. We do we write update reports. We have annual meetings with every one of our managers. We have quarterly update calls with every one of our managers. We track the occupancy in our buildings on a more or less real-time basis so that we're on top of the leasing at all times. And we track when we have construction, we track assiduously all our construction projects to make sure that we're uh, where we stand on, on budget, on time performance of construction. So the real estate program is extremely well tended. It's, it, but it, the, those activities are, and, and RC Elko in, you know, in their partnership with us has created in effect, uh, an asset management capability, you know, to, to deliver on all these promises to, uh, to make sure that the real estate program is implemented well. And it's, it's interesting though, because you have to be looking at the exceptions given the amount of stuff that you have under management. You have to look at what the problems are, the outliers are, because otherwise you can't have the time to do everything you're describing with the size team you have. We have a really detailed process for monitoring what's going on. So if there is a problem, we are I believe we're immediately aware when there's when there's problems and we address the problems with our with our managers uh, promptly, and that keeps them from becoming bigger problems. So uh, it's not any different from how you'd manage it in the private sector. In you know, the only thing that's different is you know the relationship with an external party. We wouldn't. There, there are certain things that we're outsourcing that maybe we wouldn't outsource. That would be. You know the asset management in a private compared to the private sector. Um, you know, you, you be much more likely to do that internally, but we're we're simply not able to do that here because of the you know state restrictions on on new hires and and things like that. So we've successfully implemented an outsource model. It's interesting. You're also relying on the beauty of interests being aligned, which they are set up until that unexpected things that you couldn't imagine would be, and then you're trusting each other. I think we've done a good job in creating structures that um, that align interests, and um, we pay a lot of attention to that. Our partners are typically invested very substantially in the project side by side with us and have a big economic interest in the success. So, 
Um, I think that it's, I, I think we've done a good job of, of setting up alignment of interest. And if things aren't going well, you know, we have the ability to end relationships, which you don't have in a, in a fund context. Now, we haven't had to exercise that, but, but it's there if, if it were needed. Yeah. Uh, fingers crossed that doesn't happen or happen anytime soon. When the world goes upside down, <laughs> yeah. you still don't know what th- those dynamics might wind up being. There are, no matter how good an agreement is, you know this better than I do, it's interests aligned. There's always those odd times when they're unaligned, but then you also count on the meaning of the big picture of the relationship, which keep, keeps it going. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. And that's really where... You know, the key role of internal staff is that we make it easy because we have, you know, great systems in place. Uh, but then the role of internal staff becomes to make sure that whenever there's a red flag, that there's follow up on the on the red flag. And so we have a, um, you know, a really key role for the folks that work here. And that makes sure that all the procedures and, and governance we've put in place, you know, including with external parties, uh, continues to remain focused and is acted upon when necessary. Yeah, absolutely. If you had uh, a young person getting into the real estate business, came to you for advice on maybe where to take their career and, and why in real estate, uh, what what would your conversation be? You know, it's an interesting topic because I have, my wife and I have five kids. They're in their 20s and 30s. And so I think about this a lot, um, sometimes from their perspective more than they want me to. But the, um, you know, since since I was a kid, the world has really changed. There's so much pressure on kids now to uh, to perform and, uh, you know, get a perfect score on SATs or whatever and get into the best college and stuff like that. I didn't experience any of that. I, uh, you know, I found a love in playing music and that's just simply what I did. I did what I wanted to do. And I don't think there's enough of that now. It's trite to say, follow your bliss, but I think young people should follow their bliss. You know, the twenties should be you know, your your college years in your twenties should be a time to experiment and find out uh, what means something to you, and and then when you find it, dig as deep as possible, uh, become an expert, become the best, uh, the best you can be, and then and then find a market for it. My own kids have, uh, you know, have done this. My I have my youngest daughter is you know, loves theater. She's uh, among our children. She's the one that picked up the arts bug and she's found a way to integrate theater with, um, a social work context and, and, uh, counseling. So each of my kids has, um, you know, has ended up, you know, pursuing these types of opportunities. Probably the other thing is to don't be afraid of risk. The, Particularly when I was in my 30s, you know, when I had kids, I was afraid of not having a paycheck, and I was probably more afraid of that than I uh, than I should have been. And one way to think about it is, is if you're not doing something where it's possible to fail, you're probably not doing something where it's possible to succeed. And when you know, when you take on risk, then you really buy into what you're uh, into what you're doing, and you have the potential for the greatest rewards, both you know, financially, 
and personally. And then something I've dealt with in, you know, in my career in real estate is you end up needing to reinvent yourself. And as you get older, it certainly gets harder to do that, but you have, you have to. And in my case, you know, the way it's evolved, you know, one of my great passions is, is reading and studying. I love to learn new things. And so that's ended up, that's come in handy for me uh, many times over because the world has changed so much in the 30 or 40 years that I've been doing real estate and needing to adapt as time goes by. And so now in my 60s, I'm reinventing myself one more time, even though you know, the first six years I worked at, um, you know, the pension fund, I was, um, you know, it was a kind of a continuation of my career in real estate. And it was a different context uh, to continue to do real estate. But now that I've, now that, um, you know, now that they've asked me to become the CIO for the last couple of years, I find myself learning a completely new set of topics where I need to be, uh, need to be an expert, and so I, so I'm hitting the books now. Hitting the books isn't the, isn't you know, isn't how it works for everybody, everybody, but it uh, works for me. But for everybody, you know, the ability to adapt to yourself as the world changes is, is something that you need to accept and uh, you know embrace. Yeah, totally. And, and and I asked this question at the beginning of the podcast, but I'll ask it again. Maybe upon these reflections, there's there's something else. But is there a tie-in to this last part of your career and all this learning you're doing back to the the flexibility you had to learn as a bass player in, in unknown situations? <laughs> I think that there's um, flexibility and ability to change is uh, – is a valuable is a valuable thing. I guess the first time I went through a career change is, is when I was struggling to make a steady living as a uh, as a musician. I got my first job as a you know in the commercial world actually as a computer programmer because as a musician I was sort of a combined music math person. And then when I first went into real estate, I went in an accounting and finance role. And after about a year, I went to my boss and I said, geez, this isn't really for me. This is just, you know, I don't want to sit at a desk. And I want to, you know, and, and expressed an interest in getting involved in management. And my boss at the time, who was, I think, I think he actually wanted me to stay as an accountant. And so what he said to me is, he says, well, if you want to be in real estate, the real world of real estate is sales. And so we're going to make you a salesman if uh, if you're going to be if you're going to be in real estate. And I think perhaps to his surprise, I said, "Great, make me a salesman." Now I got to admit, sales is not really my first you know first talent, but right. I did it for a year. I knocked on doors and I achieved some success and learned some things about myself, and I actually leased some space and. You know, and that was a transition for me to get out of the box of being an accounting and finance person and actually got my first decent bonus. And the first year I switched out of accounting, I doubled my pay compared to what I was uh, making before. And that kind of launched my, uh, you know, experience in the general management side of real estate. So that required, that certainly was something 
that uh, if I'd have not, uh, it was a risk that I took because right. if I hadn't leased any space, I wouldn't have made any money, and frankly, I would have been out of a job. But it was it was well worth it, and uh, and an experience that has really stuck with me as far as how I make decisions. Right, well, that's great, and you and you would they probably wouldn't have stuck in the real estate career, so it, it it's totally cool. <laughs> it's it's hard to say. <laughs> Carl, I think we're done. I've taken a lot of your time, so thank you. All right, thanks a lot. Take care. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.